The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. For the first time in four years, the Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show returns Easter 2022, featuring aircraft from the past and present as part of the RNZ AF's 85th anniversary celebrations. From the iconic Spitfire to the RAAF's F-35 fighter jets in New Zealand for the first time ever. Witness breathtaking aerobatic and pyrotechnic displays. The spectacle will be sky high. The Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show. Tickets on sale now at Ticketek. The new series on Aviation Extended, produced in collaboration with the Wings Over New Zealand podcast, is all about RAF Coastal Command in World War II. He said, look, just give me 40. 40 is what I need, which is a tiny amount, really. To give you a perspective of just um, how many, in relative terms, how few 40 is, we, the Americans, lose uh, 53 liberators. So just on one raid, we're losing more than actually Jubilee saying, listen, give me these and I can win the Battle of the Atlantic. They really were, I think, the most vital uh, long-range aircraft that Coast Command employed in the Second World War. I've read in post-war accounts of the incident it was hopelessly undergun. And it kind of annoys me because when it entered service, and OK, they only had two, three or three machine guns, but so did the frontline fighters of the RAF at that time. For the Battle of the Atlantic, I didn't think there could be any equivocation about the, the importance of Coastal Command's role. Dial into the series on Aviation Extended. That's aviation-extended.co.uk or go to your podcast player and look us up. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. Today is December the 7th, 2021. 
That marks 80 years since the beginning of the Pacific War. At least, the entry into the war by Japan and the United States of America. Because there had been war in the Pacific before December 7th, 1941. As far back as June 1940, the German Navy had begun sinking New Zealand and Australian and other Allied ships in the Pacific and in the Tasman Sea. But this particular anniversary is the entry of Japan into the war when they attacked Allied forces in Singapore and Malaya and the major attack on Pearl Harbor, the US Navy's main base in the Pacific. That brought America into the war and they became a major ally of New Zealand. In this episode, I'll present some Pacific stories. The first is an interview that I've done with Max Speedy, who lives near Melbourne in Australia. He's a New Zealander by birth, but he grew up in Australia. His father was Australian by birth, but lived in New Zealand when the war broke out. And he ended up joining the Royal New Zealand Air Force and becoming a fighter pilot. Max tells a little bit of the story of the wider Pacific War, and he talks about his father, Ian Speedy. After that, I have an interview with Marty Irons, an author and historian in the United States. Marty has a book just about to come out called Corsair Down. It's a compilation of stories of Corsair pilots who came down in the Pacific War, whether on land or in the sea. As well as US Navy and US Marine Corps pilots, Marty also includes a lot of New Zealand stories. And this special bumper episode will conclude with a rare interview that I conducted back in 2009 with New Zealand's top fighter ace in the Pacific, Geoffrey Fiskin. Jeff's well known for flying buffaloes in the Singapore campaign and then P-40 Kittyhawks and Warhawks up in Guadalcanal. So let's get on with the show. First up, here's my interview with Max Speedy. So I'd like to welcome to the show Max Speedy, uh, former commander in the Royal Australian Navy. And uh, we're talking to Max on Zoom from Australia. Hi, Max. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Dave? Good, good. Now, um, your father was in the Royal New Zealand Air Force uh, during World War II. And we're going to talk a little bit about his, uh, his service and the, the whole uh, Pacific War situation. Yeah. Um... I obviously I've, the interest is my father in this, and uh, I hope it's going to be interesting enough at the end of the day uh, for the people who who listen to your wings over New Zealand. Um, but I have uh, an idea that even for myself, as I was researching all this stuff on my dad, that I had absolutely no idea of uh, of just how quickly the Pacific War. Uh, erupted and and within weeks almost the uh, the whole of Australia and New Zealand and everywhere north to Japan was uh, in a state of war where a couple of weeks earlier it had been uh, blissful ignorance pretty well and, and yeah. the blissful ignorance is probably a major aspect of of why uh, we were all so terribly unprepared so um, I'd like to kick off with, and we'll get to my father shortly, um, sure. with just a resume of, of how the war did progress so quickly uh, down to Australia and, uh, and threatening New Zealand um, as it happened. Uh, so um, 
where should we go? We'll go right back to uh, pre-1939, no war, not even in Europe. Um, New Zealand had at least been uh, clever by ordering 30 Wellington bombers to replace your Hudson's. Um, and in- No, 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 not to replace the Hudson's. It was to replace our Wildebeest biplanes. Um, oh, was it the Wildebeest? Crikey, yeah. Even even, I know you kept the Hudsons, but uh, I yeah, thought well, it was... The, the, the Hudsons didn't come until later because we didn't get the Wellingtons in the end and the Hudsons basically replaced the Wellington order. Oh, okay. Well, I've got, I'm a bit mistaken there. Um, I know that you gave away the Wellingtons. That was yep. a critical issue. They'd been built and were ready to be picked up um, in uh, August of 39. And then blow me down on the 4th of September, wasn't it? World War II begins, and of course Churchill sides, well, you're not going to have those bombers, and uh, New Zealand's left a little bit high and dry, but it's, it was part of the same story all around the place. Um, yep. We were all dreadfully unprepared, um, and uh, as had happened for World War One, there was a new generation of youngsters who had no idea of the slaughter of Gallipoli and uh, the trenches in France and so on. So they joined up and uh, in their thousands to go and uh, fight for Britain and empire, which they did in huge numbers. So that's 1939. Yep. Uh, there was a bit of a flurry of activity in New Zealand as there was in Australia, a bit about home defence, but really everyone had their eyes on Europe, which was where everyone thought the action was going to be. Um, and lo and behold, you get Pearl Harbour, in uh, December 41. And within weeks, the, uh, the Japanese have taken Wake and Guam, uh, Hong Kong's gone. The whole of, well, China had been uh, under Japanese control for a number of years. And all of a sudden they're down through um, what is now Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Malaya, and knocking on the door of Singapore. And and just about everything else in between was in Japanese hands. Um, it was, it was a terribly, terribly quick and uh, and uh, and Britain and uh, the rest of us were so totally unprepared. Look at the number of ships we lost um, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that takes us to February uh, and uh, the surrender of Singapore. Gallant fighting by four eighty eight squadron um, doing as best they could with as little that they had um, got pretty well annihilated and uh, and some of those pilots eventually made it back uh, through Java to Australia and then to New Zealand and became the uh, the core of the fighting force that eventually went north into the Pacific a year or so later yep um, but, you know, there were some scary bits along the way for New Zealand, as it was in Australia. Um, Darwin was bombed on the 19th of February, 42, only three or four days after Singapore's fallen. Uh, it was the first of 63 bombings for that city. Um, but there were uh, bombings from e uh, Exmouth on the northwest, co yeah, northwest coast of Western Australia. Um, all the way around, across the top and down the eastern side to uh, well south of Townsville. Um, submarine attacks in Sydney Harbour. Newcastle gets shelled by another 
uh, Japanese submarine. Um, it was uh, it was pretty scary times. Yeah, uh, sure. Sunder Strait, uh, where the Japanese Navy sank um, one of our ships, HMAS, uh, that was Perth, along with the Houston and a couple of others, American ships. Yarra was sunk on the 4th of March. Um, General MacArthur left Corregidor in March, leaving behind 78,000 troops. Um, it, was a, it was a disaster in the making. Um, the Japanese were on the north coast of New Guinea and were bombing Port Moresby in May. Um, it, it, wasn't, it, was, it was not a good look for anywhere. No. Um, in fact, the first, well, the first little chink in the Japanese armor came when they decided, the Japanese decided on a two-pronged attack, one for Port Moresby, um, and a second one to um, create a base on Guadalcanal. Um, fortunately, there was some intelligence uh, leaks and whilst the Battle of the Coral Sea, which took place, uh, I think on the 4th of May, um, was probably a Japanese victory in terms of numbers. It was the first time, uh, well, first for a couple of reasons, the first time that enemy forces at sea had not seen each other and used each other's aircraft as the weapon. Um, the, and the first time the Japanese were actually checked in any way, um, which really did help. And then on the 4th, in the, in the early part of June, um, the Battle of Midway took place. And, it, and it, it surprised me, and this is why I'm going into some depth and I hope I'm not boring your audience, but the Battle of Midway, I didn't even know where Mid, Midway was until I looked at Google Earth. Um, if, you, if you start at Hawaii, which is sort of the middle of the Pacific uh, and, and run a general line Northwest from there uh, you'll come to Japan and uh, and onwards uh, to the Aleutian Islands and up to Alaska. And there's a, there's just hundreds of tiny little atolls scattered along a ridge of uh, the Pacific, um, barely above sea level. And Midway was one of them. Um, it, in fact, it's three islands. They're all none of them higher than about 10 or 15 feet above sea level. And one of them had a big airfield on it, which the Japanese wanted to take. Right. Um, the Americans there, uh, and again, very fortunately, there was a, uh, a some really good intelligence and uh, and tricky uh, slights of hand went on by the Americans and lured the Japanese across that way and uh, and and beat the living daylights out of them. Fortunately, because had that not happened, um, the next stop for the Japanese was going to be uh, Hawaii for a second time. And, and further out, Tonga and Fiji, right. um, creating a, an immense barrier between homeland Japan. Um, that didn't happen, fortunately. And from that point on, uh, we now have the American build-up in um, uh, Espirito Santo and the gradual working north and west, north, northwest from there up through well, Guadalcanal was next and other islands along the way. And, and finally to Rabaul, which was really a, a massive Japanese um, redoubt. 
Um, and that's probably about all we re I really need to uh, go on with in this part of the story because it's now where the uh, the New Zealand Air Force has got its act together and the squadrons are are being formed and uh, and are starting to uh, to go north to um, to fight the good fight against the Japanese with Americans uh, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Um... April 1942 that the first fighter squadron formed in New Zealand with Kitty Hawks and uh, several more formed after that. Uh, we ended up with six squadrons with Kitty Hawks on home defence, but it was not till the next year in March 43 that the the first Kitty Hawks or War Hawks um, went north to um, to the Pacific. That's right, yes, and there were large numbers of them. 15, was 15 the first fighter squadron to, to leave? Uh, yeah, now they actually went at the end of 1942. Um, with no went, aircraft. With no aircraft. They went to Tonga and took over aircraft there left by an American <laughs> squadron. Um, yeah. So, yeah, they were the first ones into the Pacific. And then after that, 14 squadron actually flew their aircraft up. And um, that that first attempt ended up with a bit of a disaster where uh, the first five aircraft ended up either on a beach or in the sea. Um, but after that, they they got themselves sorted out. That was problem with weather and, and radio calls and things like that, but they got themselves sorted out. And so they started bringing aircraft up and they were bringing up P-40Ms and P-40Ns. Uh, and yeah, really got into the fight from Guadalcanal. So. And under operational control of the American US Army Air Force, I expect. Yes, yep, totally. Um, part Not command, that, but control. Yeah, exactly. They they were they were considered as part of the um, of the uh, Cactus Air Force there in yep uh, in Guadalcanal, and and part of the the American command. And of course, all the aircraft. Uh, were under Lend-Lease and, and so the Americans actually owned the aircraft and um, we adapted our squadrons so that they they fitted the American um, system uh, and they used American terms on the radio and uh, well not so much the radio but in written written words um, in fact our fighter pilots tried not to use the radio uh, when they were in the air but um, yeah, so they, they sort of Americanized themselves to fit into the system up there. But as you say, the, the command was New Zealand, but the control was uh, was American. So, yeah, interesting system. Effectively, that operational control translated into, uh, into command, really, although you mm. had your squadron leaders in charge of the, of the various squadrons. Uh, there was no higher command, as I am aware of it, available to uh, uh, to give. Um, well, as today we'd be dead set certain that uh, you know rules of engagement and all that sort of stuff would be in national hands rather than uh, you know the operational controller, who whichever country that might be. We'd be too blooming touchy about those issues now, but back then it wasn't a, a problem. Yeah, although. Um... For example, at Guadalcanal, once our fighter wing got established there, um, one of the squadron commanders, um, I think he was with 17 Squadron, if I remember, uh, John Arkwright, he got promoted 
to a wing commander, uh, and he actually got a position um, where the general in charge of all of the air assets there at Guadalcanal, um, so that includes US Navy, US Marine Corps, and RNZF uh, aircraft on Guadalcanal, uh, there was a general in charge, and John Arkwright was second in charge. So there was that New Zealand um, presence there in the high command, and uh, he had a responsibility over all of the squadrons, not just the RNZF ones, which was really interesting. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I'm mm. reminded of some of that stuff that applied to me when I was in Vietnam, but that's off today's track. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, it's probably a good time now to switch to my father. Um, I don't know how long we can make this, uh, you know, with family history, you can get, I can get bogged down terribly easy. So you'll have to interject appropriately. Sure. Um, <laughs> thank you. Where to start? I, now you've noted, as you say, that my father was born in Australia. Yes, and one of your questions to me was, how did he get to New Zealand? Well, it's really, you've got to go back to my grandfather uh, for part of this. Um, he was a captain in, uh, I think, the Wellington Battalion uh, or regiment was in France. And I don't know exactly whether Lillian McLockery, who's my father's mother, whether Alex Pringle Speedy, my grandfather, who I never knew, by the way, I have the vaguest memory of him, yeah. um, whether Alex Speedy knew Lillian before they went to New, before he and she eventually went to New Zealand, uh, to from New Zealand to uh, France, or whether they met. She was a nurse on a hospital ship, and whether they met when he got hospitalised and okay. eventually repatriated to England, or whether they met when they came back to New Zealand. I've got no idea. Right. Uh, but in any event, <clears throat> my father, my father's mother is, uh, was Lillian McLockery, and she was in Australia. And I have not unraveled this. I have, no, I have a lot more work to do to try and even find out some of this stuff. Uh, but anyway, dad was born in Melbourne in 1922, uh, Lillian's his mother, and the pair of them stay in, in Australia from 1922 to 1929, uh, I think it is, yeah. when dad's just of school age, and then they come back to, well, they go back to New Zealand, and dad does all of his schooling um, in New Zealand, uh, all the way through high school, which takes him to about 1938, um, when he's 16 or so, he he does a he starts working in the King Country. Um, World War II erupts in 1939. He doesn't enlist until November 1940, I think it is. Um, Yes, 30th of November, 1941, sorry, he, he 41, enlists, yeah. yeah, 41, he enlists at Levin, uh, the initial training wing there, um, and then is accepted as uh, air crew, 
gets to elementary flying school doing tiger moths uh, and then on finally to the flying training school, which I think was down at Tyere in uh, Dunedin. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Tyre, yes. Yep. Yes, radio. Course 28B, Flying Harvards, uh, passes all of that. Uh, he gets average marks. I've got all of his uh, um, old records. And so he, he, he was just a straight average guy all the way through his flying. Um, but obviously good enough to manage, gets through to Harvard's. Um, and then finally to number two operational training unit on the fourth course at Ohakia, flying the P-40E. Yep. Um, and passes that and in October 42, uh, he gets posted to 17F squadron at Seagrove. Now I can yep. remember being at Seagrove myself um, as a youngster. Right. You'd hardly reckon I, this is after the war, obviously, but uh, Seagrove was still going. Um, and uh, I remember people that my mother was, uh, uh, what's the right word, um, billeted with, uh, whilst dad was at Seagrove. And these folks were great friends of ours for many, many more years. But anyway, that's off the, off the plot again. Um, Ian finally, with his squadron, leaves New Zealand and arrives in Espirito Santo on the 2nd of August, 1943, right. with 17F. Um, and they stay there for um, quite a few weeks, I think, just learning the ropes, um, doing basic air-to-air uh, -air maneuvering, um, no, no engagements. He didn't even fly up in his own aeroplane at that stage. He went up as a passenger in a C-47. And they were there for about six weeks. And then um, finally, in, uh, in the middle of September, he then goes north uh, with the squadron to Guadalcanal. Right. So that takes us to September 43. Um, his... Uh, Squadron CO was uh, Squadron Leader Newton. Yep, Guy uh, Newton. Yep, uh, yep. Well known finance. Quite a character by the sounds of it. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great guy by the looks of it. He, he only died uh, about two years ago or less. Oh, did he? Yeah, he was living in Aussie actually. He was, wasn't far from you. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. what, a shame. what a shame I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, too late now, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got a note here that on his, on Newton's first day, uh, he walked home after bailing out of his aeroplane, uh, along with um, three more uh, a week later who wrote off their aeroplanes and another couple more badly damaged. It wasn't a good start. Not at all. In fact, um, that, that first operation, I met Jeff Hyatt, who was also on the squadron, and uh, Guy Newton had said to him, you stick stick to me like glue sort of thing, you know, and um uh they i think they they did the they did a patrol over somewhere he his aircraft guys aircraft got shot up and it was having engine issues on the way back and in the end he had to ditch it in the sea and jeff sat above him and and called in the uh catalina um dumbo to come and pick him up yep. but yep. they were they were off the coast of a of an enemy held island and he noted that there was a, a canoe um, started coming out, a, quite a big canoe, like a war canoe type thing, 
started coming out from the shore with natives on it. And he said that he had to make the decision of what to do because he thought if they take the if they take guy back to the shore, then they'll hand him to the Japanese undoubtedly because that area was known as quite riddled with Japs. And anyway, um, he decided to go in very very low and flew over this thing and tried to scare them, and it didn't didn't stop them. Uh, so he came back and actually strafed next to them, and that turned them around and uh, oh. made them go the other way. And then luckily the Catalina turned up and and picked up guys. So. What we don't appreciate, uh, and it's something I, I I had at the back of my mind in the general introduction of how the Japanese had uh, rattled south and so forth so quickly, that uh, we'd be, we're talking glibly about Guadalcanal, but Guadalcanal had something like uh, 38,000 Japanese soldiers still on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, the Air Force... Uh, your, your Air Force or the Kiwi Air Force and the Americans were just in a little enclave surrounded by Japanese. And the, the Japanese Navy, the Air Force, submarines were coming down on a nightly basis, um, yep, doing the best they could to dislodge everybody. Yep, uh, that's exactly it. They were bringing in their food and ammunition and everything to um, down the slot, they called it. And Yes, that's right. Um, and you know our, our bombers and the the Allied bombers um, were trying to hit these ships every day, so, uh, trying to get them on the way back or on the way down. Um, it was it was precarious. I mean, even well, it's more than that, more than yeah. precarious. I mean, it was a it was a daily, um, pardon the expression, a daily shit fight. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, a, a number of the aircrew have told me that they were told. When these are guys in the Hudsons, um, they were told as they were landing on the strip to fire into the jungle because there's likely to be Japs right near the, the airstrip at the end of the airstrip firing back. And it's yeah. like it's just crazy, you know. You, you think um, those guys are right there next to the to the massive Allied base. Well, it wasn't so crazy. Uh, it's the way it was. Uh, mm. I've got similar experiences that we can talk about uh, in another place, exactly the same. Yep. So not, not much has changed. But, yep. that's <laughs> yeah. uh, but yes, I mean, uh, Guadalcanal um, was a, a bloodbath for both sides. And uh, the American Navy refused for years to release their casualty figures. Um, right. Because they were losing so many people, um, they it would, would would have been just dreadful PR back home. Right, right. Um, it was not it was not good stuff. I mean, the gutsy play, no question about that. Um, the Spirit of Santu, I think, was the only place where there was no Japanese uh, forces initially. Now it's well to the southeast of Guadalcanal. They had to start at, a, at Santo before they could take Guadalcanal. I mean, the Japanese had an airfield that the, at Guadalcanal uh, that was uh, basically the, um, the target for the Americans when they went to Guadalcanal. And just north of Guadalcanal, uh, only 20 miles away, Tulagi, was where the Japanese had a quite significant uh, seaplane base. Yep, exactly. Yep. Uh, which was, it was a two-pronged attack uh, on Guadalcanal, which surprised the Japanese. That was uh, fortunate for the Americans. 
Um, Talagi was a bit more heavily defended, um, but was basically in American hands in day one or two. And then at which point the Japanese uh, regrouped and it was on for months after that. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a good place. Yeah, you mentioned about um, Santo, though. Even there, it wasn't 100% safe because they were getting shelled at night from submarines. And um, there were quite a few times when the fighters had to scramble to try and intercept um, Japanese aircraft that were coming over. So um, mainly, yeah. mainly, mainly to photograph, I think, rather than to bomb. But um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't even 100% safe at Santo. So. No, but I don't think there were ground troops on Santo, no. which no, you're was, right. a, help, was no, a bit you're of a right. help on all these places. I mean, we'll talk about uh, um, Torokina mm -hmm. yep. shortly, uh, because that was one place that the Americans had to take before they could get further north to... No, Torokina is on Bougainville, isn't it? It is, it's, yep, yep. Yeah, radio. They had to get to Torokina before they could get effective raids on Rebel yes. or Rebel. Yep. And uh, that was the next step along the way. And again, gutsy play, the Japanese held uh, Bougainville and had three bases on the north, the east and the south, all looking outwards from the Japanese point of view. And the Americans uh, decided, well, we'll take the western side um, Empress Augusta Bay yep. on the western side of Bougainville. Torokina was the airfield. I mean, it was, <clears throat> it was only a couple of miles long by about a few hundred yards wide. That was the beachhead, which they made an airfield out of. And it took the Japanese by surprise, which was the plan um, for the Americans then to strengthen it and prevent the Japanese from causing them too much trouble, which uh, effectively happened. And from which point um, everybody then used Torokina to fly out to Rabaul, which was a really big place that they had to, um, uh, they had to destroy on the way north to, well, it was a plan to destroy it on yeah. the way north to Japan. But they still had to get to uh, rebel, at least to neutralise, which is where um, 17 and 16 squadrons are heavily involved because they took part in the first serious raid on rebel in the uh, middle of December. Right. Of 1943. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And you're talking about Turakina, which is on the... Uh, right yep. on the coast. I mean, as you say, it's the beachhead. But further north of that was also Piva, which was another Allied base. And that was in the centre of the jungle. And um, they had the bombers there. Uh, now, there were Japanese around the entire perimeter of that place. Um, well, as they and, were around Tarakina, but I, I had forgotten Piva, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, we had, uh, the New Zealanders had uh, the Hudson's and later Ventura's there. We had the um, the Avengers and also uh, uh, Dauntless dive bombers. And I've read an account of guys watching the Dauntless take off, turn around, drop their bomb into the jungle and land again within five minutes. Um, 
you know they didn't even go away they just they were bobbing just outside their own bloody fence <laughs> yeah well, well dad ian my father was there um i've got uh records that uh rufus anderson and his father put together which have been yep. brilliant yep. for me yep. um and dad when he was flying corsairs on his last tour was uh flying in and out of piva and torikina and and a few other places doing exactly that yep taking yep. off uh dropping bombs uh and then coming back to land absolutely yep yeah so on the 17th of december i think it was the first significantly uh kiwi involved raid on rebel uh i wouldn't like to have been there myself rebel was really heavily defended um i've got it that there were 500 and over 500 anti-aircraft guns 200 aircraft five airfields 56,000 troops um just at rebel and another five and a half thousand on uh, new island nearby yeah uh it was it was not an easy place to get to um so that first raid was uh well it was a big one i mean they'd been the americans had been bombing it everybody had been trying to bomb it from high level uh, but not very successfully, which is why they needed Torokina, um, so that they could get uh, fighters and uh, lower level activity around in the harbour to try and neutralise uh, that particular place. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Might be interesting to talk about MacArthur now, because he was he was doing his best uh, in Australia to essentially advance out of Australia across New Guinea uh, and to um, take on Rabaul from the west or southwest. Um, it was going to take more troops than were available at the time. And Admiral Halsey um, had the better idea of not destroying each particular Japanese enclave along the way north, but basically uh, neutralizing them by cutting off their lines of communication and uh, and bypassing them um, which didn't make friends out of MacArthur and Halsey but Halsey um, predominated and uh, and hence we we got what we probably now know better as the island hopping campaign I think it was called Operation Cartwheel and it had dozens of little sub operations but uh, island hopping north um, to Japan and Rabaul was the first um, place that was neutralized and rather than uh, having to take it uh, they they bypassed it cut off its lines of communication and and it became a de facto prisoner of war camp pretty much yeah 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 dreadful place for the locals uh, there were some horrific things went on on that place um, as in others but uh, Yes, that was the beginning of the island hopping campaign. But nevertheless, this is where um, my dad did one of his uh, first serious operations. He, uh, I mentioned the 17th of December um, when 16 P-40s took off and uh, claimed six Japanese aircraft, as far as I'm aware, lost two of your own at the same time. And dad was down at Espirito Santo that same day, nearly a thousand miles away. On the 18th of December, as I read it, 
um, there was supposed to have been a follow-up raid on Rebel, but bad weather cancelled that. And so Dad and a lot of his, uh, a lot of people on 17 Squadron um, were flown north on the 18th to uh, Odonga on Russell Island, which is northwest of Bridal Canal, uh, where they must have taken on a bunch of kitty hawks that were waiting for them. I'm not quite sure whose they were, but I guess there were 17 squadrons. Yeah. Um, and then flew on to Torokina, uh, joined up with another lot of aeroplanes and off to um, rebel with uh, something like 41 B-24s to bomb the place. Right. Um, which I think was, you know, 17th of December, um, 17 squadrons down on uh, Espirito Santo, bad weather, and they, they, someone says, radio, all you guys are coming north um, to take part in a flight the next day. And as far as I can work out, on the 19th, when they did that raid, um, everyone got well over six or more hours flying in combat. Jeez. <laughs> That's a long day. That sure is. Yeah. yeah. So that's that. Um, there were a few air, Japanese aircraft shot down, but none by my dad. Uh, the records I've got say that next over the next dozen or so days, he flies quite a number of enemy combat missions, um, strafing Japanese positions on the other side of Torokina or beyond the Torokina Peninsula perimeter. Let me put it that way. Yep. Then another raid. Uh, on the 24th of December, where my father claims his first uh, Zeke, which was confirmed, and a second one, which was damaged. Um, I take it you've got Chris Rogers' air-to-air -air book? I have, yeah, fantastic book. It's, it's pretty good. Um, and I find that uh, the research that he's done in proving the claims is, uh, is a good thing. Yep. Um, very easy to exaggerate numbers as he as he points it out in his book. Um, he's got a uh, he's got the story or he's got the report that my father made about his particular claim. Um, but there's one thing that I do want to discuss, uh, which I do disagree with Chris Rudge quite severely on. And you may wish to talk, talk to Chris about this. Um, but at the end of dad's particular report and i'll quote you here where he's actually already claimed one aircraft um, damaged another which might well have been a second claim right well chris rudge uses the word claim rather than kill um, yeah. because he backs up all his stuff with latter-day research so um whether dad got two aircraft that day or not is debatable he certainly got one um, but then the last part of his report, which is the, uh, the thing that I want to take issue with, is that um, is this little bit. I saw a Zeke make a crash landing on a reef. The aircraft didn't appear to be badly damaged, and I saw the pilot get out. Uh, saw the pilot get out. I immediately opened fire and saw the pilot fall into the water, but couldn't observe damage to the aircraft. And then that's the that's the end of the. Uh, the report that's uh, that Dad made in the yep. book, and then Chris goes on then to discuss the shooting of the 
the Japanese airmen. And uh, he, Chris notes that there was no extant policy except that the destruction of the enemy on the ground as much as in the air was officially endorsed, uh, which was uh, correct. And then he ends the discussion by stating that the RAF uh, in, in, in Europe, the United States Army Air Force in Europe again, and the Luftwaffe, um, there was a gentleman's agreement that pilots shouldn't shoot at an airman in a parachute or dinghy. Having escaped a damaged aircraft and survived, it didn't seem fair to be killed moments later. Um, now, I take issue with that because Chris then criticises Ian uh, implicitly by, by talking about him killing the pilot on the reef and, uh, and damaging the aircraft. Um, this business about there was a gentleman's agreement that pilots shouldn't shoot at an airman on a parachute. Um, Chris Rudge notes in his own book uh, earlier on an incident on the 7th of June where he has documented um, accounts of three Zeeks trying to shoot at an allied airman in a parachute. Right. Um, that said, the gentleman's agreement um, was probably valid in World War One. That certainly was an agreement. And I, you've got a brilliant display at Blenheim, I think, of um, Baron Richthofen's aircraft. Am yes. I right yep. there? Yep. Yes. yep, you're right. Oh, Marker, yep. Yep, that's right. Yep. Um, I've been and looked at it, and I, I was impressed. And certainly there was a gentleman's agreement that... Um, the aviators, the knights of the air, were given, for the most part, a funeral if it was possible by the other side and military honours and so forth. That did not apply anywhere in Europe um, or the Pacific, especially in the Pacific in World War II. There was no gentleman's agreement. It was, it was observed in the breach. There were plenty of uh, opportunities for people to have been um, spared in the air by both sides in Europe and it happened occasionally but it didn't happen always. Yeah. In the yeah. Pacific theatre the Japanese were absolutely ruthless yeah. um, about this and I and that's why I'm a bit upset that Chris has criticised my dad when in his own book he's just mentioned uh, a situation where one side was doing unto the other and Chris will have clearly known that, um, that there were no quarters given. And I think, I mean, it's a 200, his book, I think, is a 2003 uh, production. Um, the, proto the Geneva Protocols uh, about not shooting down airmen in parachutes uh, were created well after World War II. Right. And it wasn't until 1977 that um, the, the protocols actually stated that um, you were not allowed to shoot down an enemy in a parachute. And so right. he's, I think I, I take issue with him with a retrospective use of um, enemy horse to combat, unable to fight, 
applying to this particular theatre in uh, in a in a most intense and bloody war. Um, yeah, I think, I, he, I think he should have just left the subject alone. Is my view. Yeah. Uh, rather than giving a latter day um, presentation of yes, it's uh, it's it's not okay to do that. Um, that's fine, but that's yeah. not the situation that existed at the time. No, I mean, if you look at a lot of the logbooks that I've seen from uh, the, the Kitty Hawk and the Corsair pilots of the RNZF, they'll note in there, if they've been doing strafing, they'll note how many uh, ground troops they've hit and killed. Um, you know, like it's a like it's a tally, you know, they're, they're quite, quite proud of the fact that they're killing guys on the ground. So um, this this makes no difference, I don't think. Um, and the fact that he was a, tra a trained pilot who could easily get back to his unit, oh, probably not easily. Well, he was he was in his own. This Japanese person was in his own territory anyway. Exactly. The incident the incident that's being described was in the middle of Rabaul Harbour. Yeah. All exactly. right. So not, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a hundred miles away from Rabaul. It was in the harbour itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole place was surrounded by airfields. That particular guy and the aeroplane would have been back in service within a couple of days had nothing else happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, so yeah. you know, I really feel that Chris should have left that alone. But anyway, um, moving on, <laughs> moving on. Um, Dad did four tours, um, which I think was a reasonable three with three in the kitty hawks and then went back to uh new zealand for a while got promoted to warrant officer and um converted to the corsair which in my view is a beautiful airplane and then was back um back at piva which is where you we we spoke about earlier yep. near torakina yep. on bougainville island um and that tour lasted from uh, the latter, near the end of April until the 15th of July, only a couple of weeks before the end of the war itself. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, as, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, I was gonna say um, that squadron that he was now with was, he was no longer with 17 fighter squadron, he was now with 22 oh, squadron. Sorry. And yeah. they were, I don't know if you know this, they were known as the Catapo Squadron. And uh, the Catapo is a spider here that's much like the, the Redback. Um, they used to have a little emblem on each of the aircraft of a black spider. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. And that was yeah. their call sign on the air too, Catapo Squadron. So, okay. Yeah. Yep. Oh, great, great. Yeah, it was interesting how quickly though that the, uh, you know, they're still... They were still hard at it on the 15th of July when, um, you know, three weeks later, first atom bomb. Yeah. Um, and uh, the war was effectively over and it wasn't very long before all of, the, all of those guys were back home. I mean, Dad, uh, I think he probably came back with the squadron, uh, although I'm not certain, uh, on, the 20, on the 15th of July. Yep. You'd have better records than I do on that. Yeah, I think he, I think he did, and he ended up. Um, once he got back to New Zealand, he, as you say, he'd done four tours, and they put him into the what they called the central, non-effective pool, which was yep. basically just a, 
you know, a group of pilots who are waiting for their next next job. But um, that's sort of August. Um, and of course, as you say, the bombs were dropped. So that was really the end of his um, end of his time in the Air Force. He, he got shifted from there to the Northern non-effective pool, but I don't think that makes much difference. He was probably actually still on leave at that stage. Um, yeah, I can remember him. Um, we're talking about 1945. I'm only a year and a half old at this stage. Yeah. I can remember him in uniform. Okay. Um, vaguely, the poor, he wasn't particularly well. I, I think he had a few trips to the hospital one way, and I guess many others would have as well for, for the various tropical diseases which were rife. Absolutely. Um, through all of those guys and I've got I've got his medical records and there's a there's a couple of um, references to him being not particularly well although they're a bit vague um, but in any event along with others yes but I do remember him in uniform um, so but he was nevertheless demobbed um, by the end of I would think 1946 I think he was properly a civilian Yes. By that stage. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you remember any stories that he told or uh, did he ever actually talk about the war very much? Uh, no, he didn't talk about the war. I do remember a few things. Um, and I've discussed one item with um, Rufus McDonald. I remember my dad had uh, two Luger pistols. Yeah. One was a, um, a short barrel job and the other one was a uh, the next one up. Uh, I have to be vague because I don't have the precise details, yeah. which had a holster which converted to a stock. You, click it to, you clip it to the, the bigger pistol and you had a rifle of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. He had that. And I discussed this with Rufus and... Uh, uh, asking him how on earth could dad get German pistols out of a Japanese war theater. And J Rufus then went on to say, uh, tell me that it was my dad's airplane coming, a uh, Kitty Hawk coming back from one of these trips that appeared to be tail heavy for the trip home. Yeah. And he went on to tell me that it was probably my father's aircraft that had a horde of uh, Japanese um, war trophies in it. <laughs> Pistols, <laughs> rifles, you name it. Um, apparently dad's aircraft was full of it. And, uh, and not, not all my dads, um, everybody in the squadron had put it into dad's aeroplane because the customs boys back home would, would have uh, latched on to Everybody, you know, if they found something in one aircraft, they'd have gone to the lot. So dad was given some sort of cover yeah, um, yeah. by the rest of the guys. So they get all this stuff home. And I'm, and Rufus then goes on to say that he thinks that um, these Japanese weapons were then swapped for uh, all sorts of other stuff over the period. So I remember these two um, Lugers. And as I say, you know, I might have been one or two or three years old at that stage. Right, Obviously, right. I was never allowed to touch him. Um, stories, no, he never spoke about uh, the war. Right. Uh, a much longer family story is that Dad uh, left us um, in 1962 
and I never found him until 2004, um, would you believe, um, hiding in plain sight. It's a funny story in a way, hiding in plain sight in Auckland, um, the last place I ever thought he would be. Um, I'd been searching Australia for 20 or 30 years, one way and another, to try and at least see if he was okay, even if he didn't want to have anything to do with the family. He just up and left one day. That okay. was it. Wow. Um, and I have no reason why. There, weren't, there wasn't another woman involved, which is usually the story. Um, it could well have been that it was the war that had affected him. Uh, when I finally got in touch with him in Auckland in 2004, um, it was as though I was just, oh, so you're Max, are you? Oh, that's nice. Pleased to meet. How are you? It wasn't as though I was his son, yeah. and he was such a completely changed guy. I mean, it was 40-odd years, obviously, since I'd last seen him or yeah. more. Um, and from that point on, his health declined significantly, and... Uh, um, whilst he was uh, certainly more than adequately uh, comp uh, competent medic uh, mentally yeah. for the first few years, he declined very quickly into um, a form of um, well loss of loss of memory. Call it dementia. Call it what you will. Yeah. Um, he could remember, um, or he would tell me about his school days. Um, but to try and change the subject uh, um, to the war, he would have nothing to do with that. I don't right. blame him, honestly. Yeah. Um, and as far as the present, you know, having a cup of coffee with him and and chatting, uh, we would have to. I would have to repeat the uh, the current conversation uh, many many times because he just couldn't remember, and that's a sad thing with old folks. It's it's all too common. And, yeah, and so yeah. to get back to the subject at hand of whether he spoke about the war, um, no, he didn't. I don't think he wanted to. He intimated that on a couple of occasions uh, when he was capable of talking about it. And <clears throat> I think uh, that's probably the best way uh, would have been to, uh, to not the best way of anything, a sad ending in that sense uh, for him. He died alone, but uh, peacefully and I think uh, quite happily, but uh, he, he had nothing uh, in common with us, wanted nothing in common with us, which I found odd, even though um, myself, my brother and my sister uh, were still keen to sort of bring him back on board. He, he was... Um, not interested at all. Right, right. Do, do you think that he had suffered from PTSD from the war? Oh, well, that's a question. Um, probably, but if he did, somebody else, so did everybody else. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, let me just change tack here for a bit. I speak regularly to the recruits the Navy recruits at our big training base here down in Victoria. Uh, and I go and speak every 
month or two to one of the classes um, in particular. And I generally do, and I did this time get asked a question about PTSD. Um, and I, it's a long story, and I hope I don't go too long here. When I was in Vietnam, my boss always said on this subject, look, the guys in the trenches in World War I are having it far harder than any of us here. And he was partly right. Um, the guys in the trenches had an abhorrent time, but they weren't in the trenches for the whole of the war. Yeah. Um, they certainly did their bit and charging a, a machine gun and getting mown down would certainly not have been a, uh, a pleasant thought. The thing though, that when World War I ended, the Australians and the New Zealanders took years to come home. Yes. Literally, there was no shipping available and uh, now, governments weren't particularly clever at really trying hard enough to get everybody home anyway. But at least the guys, talking about PTSD, were in their groups, um, albeit in Britain. They were able at least to stay together and to work through what had been happening to them during the war. World War II, much the same. Um, the battalions stayed as groups, the ships, the people in the navies, ours and yours came home as a ship's company. Yes. Probably taking months to do so and staying with the ships at home in fair number. And so we're, we're in their composite groups. Jump forward to Vietnam on my trip home on a Boeing 707. I was in combat the day before I left. I hop into an aeroplane. One of the guys, I'm in the Navy, by the way, in case people have forgotten, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but, the, but the Boeing 707s brought us home from Saigon as just large groups of people. And there were Aussie army guys there in the aeroplane, of course, coming home. And one of the guys still had his camouflage paint on. Wow. All right? Yeah. And so eight hours later, we've left a war zone and we're back in a civilian world. Wow. Now, where's... And there were nothing. There was nothing available in country, mine or yours, um, to say, welcome home. Nobody wanted to welcome us home. I mean... Crikey, we were baby killers. It was an terribly unpopular war. Yeah. And even people in uh, our military, and I remember a few people, many people, a few people, a lot of people, telling all of us that now that we were back, we could continue our career progressions more properly because this is, this is more important for your progression of a, as an officer doing stuff in Australia than what we had been through yeah. in Vietnam. And that had no relevance at all. So you can see where there's a bit of anger and hurt um, can come into this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there were, and it, 
And really, Vietnam was the war where PTSD got its name. No question of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so heading back to the question at hand, did my dad have PTSD? Probably. Um, but, but so did how many people in New Zealand went to the World War II? Yeah, 50, 100,000, 100, I don't know. Yeah, it's like probably 200,000. Yeah, okay. And so I think there's 120,000 in the army, and then there's. Uh, yeah, well, a quite lot a few more. thousand. Yeah, well, all right. In Australia, we'll, we'll, we would have had half a million, I expect, one way and another. Yeah. Um, so, what are those? We didn't have PTSD then. We had drunks and piss pots and. Uh, and wife beaters yeah. and that yeah. sort of thing, but it was yeah. hidden, yeah. all right? And it wasn't until well after Vietnam that the um, personnel services arrangements in our defence forces actually got cracking. Up to Vietnam, there was a, two chaplains, generally a Catholic and a Protestant chaplain yeah. who yeah. were the, in, in units and home bases around the place um, who would be our counsellors. No psychologists, um, no nothing. And then the uh, personnel services organisation got going uh, and, and finally managed to uh, at least put up the um, put up an effort of looking after people who have been in a conflict of some description and doing their best to, to manage whatever evils those people may be dealing with uh, after the event. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's not a perfect system. Um, it, I, I have difficulty at my age accepting that a 25-year-old a PhD graduate um, with the title of uh, psychologist has any ability to counsel me about what I have been through. Right. Now that's a different story entirely, not denigrating any of those people um, and their profession, but it's not an easy job. And that's why I think that uh, World War One and World War II people um, probably were able to manage PTSD, the real PTSD, people with flashbacks and, and the jitters and, and, and reliving the nightmare. I mean, I can remember everything that went on in Vietnam, but I don't remember it as a nightmare. Right. Some, some of it was nightmarish. There's no question about that. Um, but I don't, I don't go hiding under the bed or, um, you know, looking behind curtains. Yeah. And I don't think, I think the guys in World War One and Two because um, it was mostly men anyway, um, were able to, to sort out most of the problems they had because it took them so long to come home to um, a completely different world. Yeah, absolutely. They were a tough generation too, and, and these days the World War II generation are sort of known globally now as the greatest generation. I mean, they had come through the depression and then the war. Um, and, you know, they kind of built a better world afterwards. And I kind of think today, what was it all for? Because it, 
the place, the whole world seems to be falling apart again. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that same bunch of recruits I was mentioning earlier, um, the youngest of them in the group, there are 85 of them in the group that yeah. I was talking to, and I, someone asked me how old was I when I joined the Navy? And I said, well, how many of you are not yet 18 years of age? And about half a dozen or so hands went up. And I said, well, that was mine. I, I joined the Navy just before 18. Yeah. Now, they, these 18-year-olds who put their hands up weren't alive when 9-11 happened. Wow. Holy okay. smokes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you tend to forget that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. I mean, they'll have probably heard about it. Yeah. But what about yeah. the Bali bombings and the, uh, um, what other holocausts have we had in similar vein? There have been dozens of them. You see what yeah. I'm getting to? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, just go, it just goes and it goes and goes, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it goes. It goes which is why I was keen at the beginning of our talk this morning to talk about how the war progressed so rapidly and, and so forth, because uh, even with all the research I've done, a lot of it was news to me or a, a, you know, a reminder. Yeah. I didn't remember that. My gosh, look at all this. Yes, of course, now I, I've read about that. I mean, clearly I wasn't there for any of that stuff, but um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I joined the Navy at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a bit of, I mean, you know, it's just, that's just my age. So that's yeah. fine. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you can see how many, I, I went onto the internet recently um, in some sort of preparation to look at, all of the conflicts since um, 2000, the year 2000, I think it was. Yeah. But anyway, something came up on Wikipedia which listed them from, uh, oh, probably from, from from way back, you know, before um, Athens, uh, before the, the Greeks fought the Trojans or something. But um, in modern times, there has been hundreds and hundreds of conflict. And I mean, yeah. modern since World War II ended. Yep. There's been at least 100 or more uh, all over the place. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's very sad. It is. It is, but it's uh, it's part of our human nature, I'm afraid. There's a gene in there which says you're going to have to fight somewhere sometime. Yeah, that's true. Not a happy yeah. thought, but it is. <laughs> that's got us into it. That's got us into a corner. How do we get out of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think you've uh, covered your dad's service really well here and um, and also given a, a nice sort of snapshot of what the Kiwi fighter pilots were doing during the war. And um, Very gutsy stuff. I mean, considering yeah. the size, uh, always punching above their weight. That's for sure, you guys. There's no question of that. Um, and most of the like all of those guys were volunteers most of them were straight off the street and, and you know during the war like you say your dad had just been working in in king country um a lot of them were farmers a lot of them were just you know um 
they weren't they weren't pilots they weren't they weren't professional um military guys you know they were just off the street and they became some of the greatest fighter pilots of the pacific war some of those guys so um yeah got a lot of respect for them oh the volunteer side yeah when i was in a (laughs) if we do another talk i can perhaps you can perhaps remind me but i'll tell you now when i was in vietnam um, the Americans were absolutely amazed that we were in the permanent Navy. Yeah. Okay, as volunteers, by the way. Yeah. For the most part, and I mean 98% of them in Vietnam were uh, conscripts. Right, right. And they had a lovely expression for us. We were lifers. Okay. <laughs> we were lifers. <laughs> in for life. And they just couldn't understand it. But anyway, they got over it. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we'll definitely be uh, having you back on the show in the near future. And I definitely want to cover your uh, your own career and um, talk a bit about Vietnam as well. So um, thank you very much, Max. Well, look, happy happy to do it. You're going to have to edit, edit a fair bit of this stuff. <laughs> I don't know. It's all pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll leave that entirely up to you, but it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Dave, and I think you're doing, uh, you've got a great thing going. You really do. I don't know anything similar in this country. There may well be, um, but you've got a great thing going. Keep it up. It's good work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This is the Wings Over New Zealand show. Well, I'd like to welcome Marty Irons to the show. Hi, Marty. Hey Dave, it's uh, it's a great uh, great to be with you. A real pleasure. Thank you. No problem. Now you are in Vermont, uh, is that right? In the USA? Yes, I am. And um, the reason we've got you on the show is you have just written a book, uh, Corsair Down, and the subtitle of that book is uh, Tales of Rescue and Survival During World War Two. You've been working on this book for a long time. I know that you first contacted me back in 2015. Can you give us a little bit of a concept of what the book's about? Please. Sure. So um, during World War II in the Pacific, the Corsair was the greatest fighter plane for the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Marines, the RNZAF, and uh, even the British use it with uh, their carrier task force. So during research for a previous book, uh, I became interested in um, the Corsair as was always my favorite plane as a kid growing up. Uh, Baba Black Sheep, Greg Boynton, VMF 214. Yes. So uh, I actually got to uh, speak with some Corsair pilots uh, with research for the first book. I had a, kind of a list of pilots that were saved by my father-in-law's destroyer squadron during World War II. And from there, that just kind of... Um, you know, I had this list and I just kept expanding it and kind of realized there was nobody else that had really published a book that kind of looked kind of big picture at the what happened to Corsair pilots during the war in the Pacific. And uh, as you can imagine, a thousand ways on a thousand days, things can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And there's thousands of stories out there from different pilots as well. And uh, you've managed to pull together a collection of all different stories and I should say it's not just US Navy and US Marine Corps but you've also got the New Zealand stories in there as well which is really relevant to the show and uh, are there um, fleet air arm guys have you got any of their stories? 
there are a few uh, fleet air arms stories. Um, they they had a pretty small involvement compared to like the, the the U.S. and New Zealand in the war. They they appeared on the scene with their Corsairs in January of '45 in the Pacific, and yeah, uh, yeah like I said, they're, they're there, but uh, not to the extent that some of the other uh, other allies were there. Yeah, we should qualify that they had a small involvement in the Pacific, but they those carriers had come across from uh, Europe and and uh, in the Indian Ocean. They had been quite active there. Um, yes, and, and and in fact, some of those Corsair squadrons and those carriers uh, had attacked the Tirpitz, Um and there were a lot of Kiwis involved in that. There was, because I don't know if you realize this, but one quarter of the air crew in the fleet air arm were actually New Zealanders. So um, it's quite a significant number of New Zealanders yeah. flying there. Yeah. I didn't realize, yeah, no, no, I did not realize the number was that high, but you know, it also mm. plays into, um, there's an appendix in the back of the book that looks at Corsair pilots that became POWs. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, for the five British or five um, Royal Navy pilots who were captured in Europe, they all survived. Um, but it was very different in the Pacific. Uh, the Japanese didn't treat pilots the way the Germans treated pilots. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, one really interesting one on your list, I did notice there, uh, Don Cameron, he was uh, Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. He was actually a Kiwi. Um, and he uh, he got captured twice, believe it or not. He was captured uh, by the Italians when he was in the Mediterranean, managed to escape, and then continued flying, and then came out to the Pacific and was captured again by the Japanese. So that's quite unusual. That, that is actually, I know of a Hellcat pilot in the same circumstance. Okay. But uh, we're talking, we're talking about Corsairs today. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he was in he was in a Corsair the second time he was captured. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Um. So, what does the Corsair mean to you? The Corsair. I think because its main association is with uh, the Marine Squadron 214, VMF 214, really was just kind of the, uh, the epitome of daring do in the Pacific during World War II. Again, you know, I was a kid who grew up watching Bob Bob Black Sheep on TV, featured very loosely the highlights of the, the Black Sheep Squadron. And uh, again, as, as I delved into it, it was kind of a unique situation in that uh, as I started to do the research, talk to the Corsair pilots, the Corsair was an incredible plane. It had a, an amazing kill ratio of 13 to 1, but it was also a handful to fly. Um, pilots like your own Brian Cox found it very easy, yeah. but for young American pilots, uh, on the other hand, Many of them were, were lost in training. Many were lost in just their first flights from carriers because it was really, it was a handful. Yeah, they were a big step up too. They were a big aircraft, um, massive prop on them. So yes. I, know, I know my dad grew up um, as a kid. He was literally across the road from Ardmore where our main Corsair training base was. And sure. all of our squadrons would reform there or form up. And so he reckoned there was lots and lots of accidents. Um, they'd come through the fence and into their paddocks and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, 
It's certainly it's a, it's an interesting aircraft. Um, our air force had previously uh, been in combat with uh, Warhawks, the P40s, and uh, uh, did very well um, considering. But uh, by the time that they converted to uh, started converting to the Corsairs in in May 1944, um, the Japanese had pulled back most of their aircraft from the region yes. that New Zealanders were in. So our guys were mainly bomber pilots. So they did a few patrols and stuff like that. They did a lot of patrols, but nothing that encountered any enemy aircraft. So um, it's an interesting thing that none of the RNZF pilots ever shot anyone down in a Corsair, no. simply, simply mm. because they weren't there to shoot down. Um, but, they, <laughs> but they did amazing stuff as bomber pilots and um, pinpoint targets in the jungle, stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, I've I, I've got a lot of respect for the Corsair. It's a fantastic aircraft. It really is, and um, you know, one of the uh, chance Vought uh, technical pilots was Charles Lindbergh, the famous Charles mm. Lindbergh. Yeah, you know, who went out to the Pacific, and part of his role was teaching squadrons at that point, pretty much Marine squadrons, U.S. Marine squadrons, how to get the most out of the planes. He was the first pilot to carry two tons of bombs on a mission uh, right yeah most bombing missions was a single 500 pounder there were there were exceptions they could carry up to a ton um but you know he managed to put two tons under his corsair safely got off um and reading many accounts of pilots who encountered charles Lindbergh, they're all professed just his great technical skills how inspirationally he was and um you know it was kind of a, a hidden fact for a long time that he actually went out on combat missions and uh shot down a japanese fighter yeah amazing isn't it that's incredible yeah and, and he was teaching those pilots not only that the aircraft would carry a lot more weight but uh how to manage the the engine so that it, they could get a lot further with um fuel management that sort of thing wasn't it Yes, and that was a that was a big issue. A friend of mine, um, Potts Wilmot, he's ninety eight now. He uh, he flew with Marines off the the Bunker Hill Air Group eighty four, yeah. and he talks about as he was a uh, he was a wingman. So as a junior pilot, he was actually the youngest pilot in his squadron. That basically he knew nothing. You know, he, he was trained to know the least amount possible in terms of what the mission was and the plane itself. Yeah. You know, the idea was he was going to tuck his wing under the wing of his leader, follow his leader, coordinate with his leader, and the leader would get him back home. Um, so, yeah, and he, so he ran out of fuel on his second mission, and uh, that, was, that was pretty common. Right, right, right. So how did you go about selecting stories? Uh, this is really a collection of separate stories, isn't it? That uh, all tell of the incidents of Corsairs going down and pilots being rescued. So how did you pick out which ones to use? I started a spreadsheet of the rescues. So looking at uh, just bureau numbers, the actual identification number of each plane, there are a lot of resources out there. So I, I researched uh, as much as I could tried to find the backstories on some of the more interesting ones, which led to the book. And so it's 20 separate chapters in an epilogue. Um, each 
chapter is either a kind of a general topic where there's a lot of little stories or uh, about a single pilot and uh, their mission. Yep. And yeah, and with the exception of being, um, there's a chapter that starts in the middle and finishes as the last chapter and that follows Greg Boynton and another Corsair pilot after being shot down at Robal and then going to Japan. Right, right. Um, of course, you've got to have Greg Boynton in there. He was shot down. Everybody thought he was dead, didn't they? They didn't yes. know he was still alive. Yeah. No, no, no one knew he was alive. His mother was a given uh, his medal of honor. He was promoted posthumously, though he was alive. Um, and he's an interesting character. The, um, the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, the Army, yep. U.S. Army flyer, he speaks a little bit about uh, meeting Greg Boynton at the Ofuna POW camp. And he didn't think highly of Greg initially. And that's what I found. You know, my research found he was either beloved or he was looked really down upon by other officers. There was really no middle ground. But uh, those that adored him would follow him to the ends of the earth. I had a friend here, uh, he died about a year or so ago. Um, he was in the Royal Navy Fleet here, um, he was a Kiwi. Uh, he was an observer, uh, which is the same as a navigator, is a Navy term for it, uh, in a ferry firefly. And he and his pilot, who was also a Kiwi, were over Japan in, the, uh, on a, in a firefly. That was only like a week before the war ended. They got shot down, both managed to parachute out, were captured and went through a series of places, but he ended up in the camp with Boynton and he was placed into the same hut as Boynton. And he thought, yeah, this guy's fine. He, he didn't think anything of it. Um, although he heard after the war, you know, the rumors that people didn't get on with him, but um, I think he had his own problems. He was actually quite tall and he had red hair and he said that the Japanese used to single him out because they didn't like redheads. So they used to beat him every day and things like that. So, yeah, interesting. Luckily, luckily, as I say, it was only a, a, a week before the war ended. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we actually, and there's a, a short tale uh, in the final chapter about uh, a Corsair pilot who was shot down in the morning and the war ended in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for him. <laughs> there's a there's an actual Corsair pilot I interviewed, um, another Kiwi, who was shot down on that same uh, same raid that uh, Ian was shot down on, and uh, he tried to get back to his um, ship, but couldn't quite make it. Went down in the sea, ditched, got out, was sitting in his raft, and a few minutes later there was this gurgling sound, and up came an American submarine and picked him up. Um, he's in the middle of nowhere in the ocean, and you know they sure. got, yeah they got his. Uh, they got his position perfectly and they picked him up and he spent the rest of the war, which is only a week, um, as a crew member on the submarine. <laughs> so <laughs> he was quite happy with that. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, you want, if your listeners like that, they'll be happy to know there's a um, there's actually a chapter about three Corsair pilots who got lost during the attack against the Japanese battleship Yamoto yep. in uh, April of 45. And um they went up in the jet stream and nobody really knew much about the jet stream and they got blown way off course um, and ended up ditching uh, in a storm off the coast of Japan, two days at sea 
in, in very bad circumstances. And just um, one pilot uh, thought he heard an airplane fly overhead, shot his very gun, and uh, nearly took out the officer of the deck on an American submarine that had just surfaced to uh, <laughs> refuel its, uh, recharge its batteries. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Now, I notice uh, the book is dedicated to first, I guess, Lieutenant, you say in America, we say Lieutenant, um, First Lieutenant Philip S. Wilmot of the yes. U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. Now, tell me about who, who was he? So uh, this is my friend, Potts Wilmot, who I mentioned earlier. Right. So he was, um, he had just gone up for an early morning flight on December 7th, 1941 in a in a little Piper Cub, and when he landed, his fiance asked him where Pearl Harbor was. And he said he didn't have the faintest clue. Um, but three years later, he was on the Bunker Hill in Marine Squadron 451, uh, the Blue Devils, heading out to, uh, you know, to fight the, the battles in the Pacific under Admiral Halsey for a moment, and then under Admiral Ray Spruance with Task Force 58. So, um, he flew, his first combat mission was the famous February 16th, 1945 mission against Tokyo. So this is the first time Navy pilots, U.S. Navy pilots were over Tokyo since the Doolittle Raid in 42. Yeah. He shot down, uh, he and his leader shot down a plane. So he's got half a victory for that. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, Potts, every time I talk to him, he laughs. He says, oh, he's a... I thought I was going to be an ace. It seemed so easy because I got a kill on my first mission. But uh, that was <laughs> <laughs> that was that was his only claim of the war. Um, and uh, I, I was able to track Potts down because he was still flying. So yeah. Uh, so nineteen. I'm sorry. Nineteen in 20, uh, 2014, I tracked Potts down. He was right. still an active flyer in Colorado. Had a little sport plane. And he flew actually until 2017 before he finally uh, hung it up. But uh, great guy. Interesting stories. Every time I spoke with him, and I, I, I still, we still talk frequently. But, you know, I, you know I, I think the thing that sticks with me the most, Dave, is that uh, he's very candid. He ends every conversation about the war saying, I was so scared. Right. I was so right. terrified. Um, and it's an interesting perspective because we don't hear that very often from no. pilots. No, no uh, everybody was stoic. But um, on May 11th, 1945, he had returned from a mission against Okinawa. Um, had gone down to his stateroom and two kamikazes hit the Bunker Hill. So now he is in a life and death struggle against the Japanese and survival of a ship as loaded planes, armed planes were blowing up up on deck. And you know, pilots weren't part of the carrier company. They weren't trained what to do in an emergency on a carrier. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was really a, uh, oh, you know, it was, I can't imagine trying to come up on deck and seeing nothing but thick black smoke, the explosions, you know, encountering dead sailors on the deck. Um, as a matter of fact, the Navy lost three Corsair aces um, that day it was the greatest loss of u.s aces in the war for a single day and uh, 17 corsair pilots died so um so um that's that's kind of a 
the story about Potts. He, he's a great guy, and uh, I look forward to every conversation with him. He, he reminds me, that description reminds me of Brian Cox, who you got to write the foreword for the yes. book. Um, again, he was flying up until he was 93. Unfortunately, Brian died earlier this year, but he, he was, you know, a great guy, always willing to talk about uh, anything to do with flying, but particularly the war. And he's written a few books and things like that. And um, uh, I'm so pleased that you managed to get him in the book and, and his story as well. You know, first of all, you were a tremendous early help for me just trying to you know, capture the New Zealand perspective right. and putting me in touch with Brian. And as you say, Brian was a very, very willing collaborator. Yes. Um, uh, and there was not a request he said no to. Anything he could do to help, he did. Yeah, absolutely. He was always like that. He's fantastic. And he also had such a depth of knowledge uh, about anything to do with uh, wartime Air Force, but particularly the Corsairs. He was great. You can yes. ask him anything. He appears uh, in a chapter actually about a uh, U.S. Marine pilot who was badly injured and had to fly 150 miles back to uh, to his base on a little island in the Pacific in um Brian actually gave a really great detailed uh, version of what happens to a Corsair when you dive too quickly, when you dive too fast. And, and this pilot, the American pilot had done the same thing. Oh, right. Okay. You've got some other Kiwi stories in there too. Uh, one of them that I noticed is Keith Wakeman. Now, he was um, he was a well-known pilot post-war, but uh, I know he was in 21 Squadron during the war. Uh, and he got shot down, didn't he? He did. Um, it's Wakeman's walkabout, and uh, he, he shows the resilience. You know, um, New Zealand, Australia, you guys are known for your resilience, you know. Um, and uh, he, he certainly showed that in being shot down in the jungle and, you know, finding his way back to through enemy lines to his, to his own lines, getting repatriated, and then uh, discovering that his buds had... Uh, Pretty much taking all his liquor and all his goods and uh, <laughs> <laughs> dipping it amongst themselves because uh, Keith wasn't coming back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that happened a couple of times. <laughs> uh, and another Kiwi that you've uh, covered is Gordon Delves, and he was actually a squadron commander. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, what was his story? His story was he probably had one of the shortest flights in the Corsair and lived. Uh, he had taken off with a, a daisy cutter, which is a bomb with an extended fuse. So basically imagine a large bomb with about a three foot, four foot rod coming out of the nose of the bomb. Yeah. And it was designed to explode. When it hit, it would explode actually above ground. It was for devastating troops or, or clearing terrain, things like that. Yeah. He got airborne and his engine stalled. So all of a sudden he was landing. Um, so he was wheels up, landing on a, a pair of these daisy cutter bombs. <laughs> As a, So large, deadly skis, essentially, as he uh, skidded down the metal mats of, of the runway. And uh, when he finally came to a stop, well, Despite all the, the gear, he certainly bolted as fast as he could for the for the jungle. <laughs> as yeah. the uh, 
<laughs> as you can only imagine. And of course, you know, uh, in just the opposite way, the, the rescue crews are running towards the, the Corsair. Yeah. Luckily, all survived. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, uh, as well as uh, obviously the Corsair pilots, there's uh, a little bit in the book about the rescuers themselves. And um, one of those squadrons that were rescuing pilots in the Pacific was number six squadron RNZF with the Catalinas, the Dumbos. Yes, and, and uh, those were always welcome sights to, to pilots who were on the seas. There's a chapter in the book actually uh, about Greg Boyington when he was shot down. At the same time, he was on Rabal as a prisoner. Uh, another American pilot, uh, Jack Morris, a young lieutenant, was shot down. So he actually managed to fight his way to the sea after several days, get in a raft and was rescued by the number six squadron. So um, just, there's just some amazing stories. There really are. They are, they are. And Jenny Scott's book about the number six squadron really, really dovetails Nicely with Jack Morris's book about being uh, being lost on Rabal, so um, they're really kind of bookend books. Right. And I'm, right. Yeah, I, I was just fortunate to, to be able to have both families allow me to bring it together. Fantastic. It's a it's a fascinating book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet, but um, I've certainly looked through it, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, can you? Tell us a little bit about, uh, it's coming out um, a week after this will be broadcast, or first broadcast. Uh, it'll be on the 14th of December, won't it? Yes. And whereabouts can people get it from? Mighty Ape. So yeah, they're, they're, they're two big booksellers for New Zealand's. Yep. I can't recall what the second one is off the top of my head, but... Uh, the book will be available there. I'll, I'll send you that email or that information in an email. Okay. And anyone else listening, it's also on uh, Amazon and, and other big uh, bookshop. Uh, yes, it is. Isn't it? Yeah. I actually did see, I had a look around before and saw there's already reviews up on the Amazon site and they're all very good reviews too. So um, very good. Yeah, I've been really blessed with this project. Number one, it's been a lot of fun. And uh Got to talk to a lot of Corsair pilots, you know, and that's not something we're not going to be able to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When Brian passed away, I, I um, had a bit of a look around by notes and I can only think of around about five Kiwi Corsair pilots still alive now, which is really sad. Um, it, it, it's yeah. And I know that some of them aren't too well either. No, no. And uh, most of the pilots who collaborated, collaborated with me have, have passed on yeah. COVID has been um, between COVID and age. It's, it's been a tough two years. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you very much, Marty. I, I wish you well with the book. I hope it goes very well. And I, I hope a lot of Kiwis will um, grab copies as well. I hope everyone enjoys it. And uh, again, I thank you for the opportunity and it really, it's been a pleasure working with you, researching with you and collaborating with you over the last six years. Uh, my pleasure. I, I always like to help out anybody who's working on history projects and um, this one's a particularly interesting one. So yeah, I, I, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you.
This is the Wings Over New Zealand show. For the first time in four years, the Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show returns Easter 2022, featuring aircraft from the past and present as part of the RNZ AF's 85th anniversary celebrations. From the iconic Spitfire to the RAAF's F-35 fighter jets in New Zealand for the first time ever. Witness breathtaking aerobatic and pyrotechnic displays. The spectacle will be sky high. The Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show. Tickets on sale now at Ticketek. And now, an interview with the RNZAF's top fighter ace of the Pacific War, Geoffrey Fiskin. Uh, I think I'll, I'll start right at the beginning, if you can tell me a little bit about your early life. And you came from Gisborne, didn't you? Yes, I came from Gisborne. And, um, oh, early life was uh, very good. They, uh, we were, my father was well off, and... Uh, a uh, big sheep dealer, and that, and um, at some at odd times we had fifty thousand sheep on the road from Gisborne to to um, oh I can't think of the name of the place over here and, and now but never mind um, and um, you know went to school we, and uh, those days there was nothing. No, not very many cars around, and everybody was on horses, so we all rode horses to school. And uh, the worst thing about it, I was left-handed, so you got to have your hands, left hand tied up, so you couldn't write with your left hand. You had to write with the right hand in those days. Uh, so I can write with either hand now, it doesn't matter, but uh, I mean... Uh, uh, it was a bit of a bugger, you know, to have to have a hand strapped up all to the very, to your side all the time. Um, but uh, oh, we got past it and got into trouble all the time. But uh, you know, but in those days, the police just came along and gave you a good kick in the backside, and that was some total. You knew what you know, to keep out of it, uh, trouble. And um, there wasn't much uh, uh, going on as far as stealing or anything like that was concerned anyway in those days, you know, you very seldom uh, got them. Um, then we got uh, trams arrived, you know, and you had the trams. And they were a great thing to get in and ride, you know. Uh, but that was all the school days were, you know. Um, apart from getting hidings at school, well, I mean, they had no compunction to keep on strapping you or belting you with a... Uh, if um, they wanted to give you a strapping, they... they belted you with a, um, a piece of simple jack, you know, and that that was, that kept you quiet. At one stage I, uh, now I got a belting at school and uh, <coughs> I, uh, I walked home and uh, walked to school and led my horse for about four days. 
because I couldn't sit on them. <laughs> you know, uh, but it was, um, oh, um, school was very enjoyable. Then I went away to farming college and uh, I first learned to fly uh, when the Tony White and Mad Mac McGregor and uh, who was the other one? I forget his name. But anyway, he they used to come and land on the paddocks of Matt at uh, Gisborne and Matawera on the farm, and then take people for rides, you know. And so um, I used to go out there after school on my pony, and if I could get a ride in an aeroplane, I'd take it, you know, because my sister was. Uh, was flying, she'd learned to fly, and um, so I first learned to fly at, uh, when I was 14. Wow, that's And uh, I couldn't get a license or anything like that to fly, but I mean, I was showing how to fly, and that was it. Old Tiny White just said, Take off and put his hands in the air, and I took off and landed it again for him and uh, he said you'd get a license but you can't get one you're too young <laughs> so that was it you were mentioning about your family um, flying your sister and your father yeah yeah um how, how did your father get into the flying oh he uh, he always enjoyed it because he was there and uh, a lot of times he flew, got a fellow in a tiger moth to fly him somewhere to look cheap or something like that, you know. And, uh, um, but Ian got, I suppose he's like anybody else, he enjoyed it and, um, and went, uh, quite enjoyed flying. But, uh, I don't know to this day how he got into an aircraft because he had, uh, when he was a kid, he fell over and they removed his knee, kneecap, and he had one stiff leg, was stiff as a hell. A lot of people, a lot of fellows used to kick him in the leg because they reckon he had a wooden leg, but he didn't have a wooden leg, you know, he just had a but he used to get into that plane all right. But, um, my sister, it was quite natural with her. She could get in anywhere. She was a um, bit of a tomboy, a tiger moth, you know. And a tiger moth never worried her much. But she used to fly. Actually, she was flying the day Madame McGregor got killed. She flew to Palmerston with Mad Mac McGregor that day and then he went on to Wellington and got killed when he was landing. So uh, she was lucky she got out to see some people in Palmerston. So a lot of things happened with luck. We had a few interruptions during this interview. Jeff's lawnmower man turned up and made a bit of noise and we stopped and started. And you'll also hear that the clock on his wall continued to chime in every now and then. But Jeff started to talk about joining the Air Force and 
during his initial flying training. And uh, you don't uh, get on for a, for a while, and uh, you fly all tiger moths for your first lot, and um, it's um, then sometimes they send you on and they put you on to whether they're going to promote you to bombers or something else like that, you know. All going to keep you, you know, and uh, another. So if you're going to, the thought of you was going into a fighter, not that you think you're going into a fighter, but uh, you'd most probably fly Hines or something like that. And is that what you flew? Yeah. What were the Hines like to fly? Nice plane to fly, very nice plane. But of course, that was uh, they were all building better planes all the time, and they were getting they were really slow too, you know. Uh, but uh, they were, but the hind was a nice plane to fly. Did you have any sort of um, interesting flights or, or scary incidents when you were training, or was it all straightforward? Oh, a lot of it was straightforward. Oh, we we had one that we uh, one uh, interesting thing that was uh, uh, the home guard had been formed and they were on horses. You know, they used to come to the aerodromes and dodge tages, and one fellow wanted to ride and. One day, and I said, "All right, so put him in the plane." And in those days, the back seat of the hind was the gunner's thing, and uh, you had your parachute in a little uh, cubby hole just in front of you, and you were strapped by your ass to the floor, you know, was on a big steel chain. And this joker wanted to jump but to get out at one stage, you know. And uh, I said, don't be so silly and stupid, you know, you can't get out. And told him before he took off, but anyway, when we took off, and actually he, um, he did get a bit of a fright. The panel on the side of the old hind blew off. So we were left in, you know, we were left in free air for a while, one panel off. And um, he didn't wait, he just jumped over the side. But he was still hanging by his ass there, and he hadn't put a parachute on. So he'd have been a dead fella, so I didn't worry about him, I'd just left him there and he was screaming his head off and I landed and taxied in and got the other fellow, got the mechanics to pick him up and undo him and let him out and that's the last ride he ever had in an aircraft. He wasn't allowed to go up anymore. But, uh, oh, so he did the stupid thing, you know, jumping out. But he was 
He looked so funny when you could see him or get a glance of him over the side and he was hanging by his ass and, you know, uh, at, uh, at, uh, the, um, went away and uh, we had to go by ship in those days everywhere. So we, I, when I went away, I went, we went to over to Sydney on a by boat, and then got on a a Dutch boat to go through the islands to uh, uh, to Singapore, and uh, stopped at every little island for a few days, and uh, uh, I'll never forget. Um, Bali, the girls and women wore nothing above the waist in those days. And I, my eyes were so sore after a week there, I couldn't see, you know, and uh, uh, they, they were all laughing at me, but uh, I managed to get away with it. And uh, they, I've been to Bali, back to Bali a couple of times since, and it's, it's entirely different now, it's a real tourist resort. In those days, everybody come out by boat, and uh, we had um, uh, four Air Force fellows on on the boat going over, and um, two Japanese that were interned and going sent back to uh, I think they were left in Indonesia. I'm not quite sure where they were left, but. Uh, yeah, they, uh, but that's how we um, landed in uh, Malaya and then went on from there. And we only had uh, buffaloes to fly in those days, or uh, first for a while I, I flew Catalinas and um, then pestered the orderly staff uh, to get out of them because they were so slow and so rowdy and you know and you couldn't see to take off and you couldn't see to, to land because the spray came over you the whole time. But, uh, um, Is it true that you also flew Singapore's? Mm -hmm. Is it true that you also flew short Singapore's? Yeah. Like you did fly yeah. Singapore? Yeah. What were they like? Uh, all right, um, they were, um, but I didn't fly them for long, I, you know, they were, uh, um, they were slow and uh, we were quite pleased when we got the buffaloes and they come in and they were supposed to be the ideal thing, but they weren't. The Japs could fire much faster than us and uh, get it to higher altitude, you know. Um, and uh, we were at a disadvantage the whole time. Yeah, but uh, they were um, oh, the buffaloes were a lovely plane to fly. They were a real ladies' plane, you know. 
you could drop her in from a, about six or eight feet off the ground and they'd never bounce even, they'd just run along by it nicely, you know. Beautiful to land and take off, but uh, as I say, they didn't have the power or anything like that. So, um, what was life like in, in Singapore before the Japanese? Um, oh, it was uh, very good. You know, um, we had uh, well, good barracks and good uh, things, and you could, you never went out before about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you know, because it was too bloody hot and you um, had to go out and, uh, and keep in the cool air uh, and keep cool so everybody used to thing but the, uh, you know you'd take several bottles of whiskey over to a table that four of you were drinking and uh, they'd all have the same and you'd drink it all four bottles of whiskey or so with the crowd and it never affected you at all because you sweated it out immediately. But beer, you couldn't drink beer, there you didn't sweat that out very much and so you got full as a bull. But uh, whiskey was all right. <coughs> it wasn't any easier to All the Dutch people was in Indonesia. But um, no, it was, was, was quite a, a pleasant life in those days, you know, in Singapore when, without the fighting. When the, the Japanese invasion of Singapore and Malaya began and you first went into combat, um, what, what was your first combat experience like? Was it all pretty quick or...? Uh, well, I think, I'm trying to remember. Um, it wasn't... Uh, no, 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 well, we... Um, we, uh, that day, I think, uh, from memory, at one, at one stage anyway, we had the height on them. They'd come in fairly low and we had the height on them. And uh, there was only two of us and we dived straight at them and went straight through them, uh, firing, and then pulled up underneath them and fired again. And, um, I got two that day, the first day, I think. And the other fellow was with me got one. So we got to, and then we got the hell out of it because they all started to think about us, you know, to, um, You actually had a few, quite a few victories in the Singapore campaign. Yes, I had six in Singapore. Were you the, would you have been the only ace on buffaloes at the time? Yes, I think so. Wow. I think so, but uh, the Singapore fellows 
uh, or hierarchy, they uh, um, didn't even recognise us. They recognised the photography crowd that was taking photos of from their planes through the floor of the plane, and and they gave them all some sort of a medal. It wasn't very high sort of business, you know. And then we had, I had two in my section that they grabbed at one stage, Charlie Cronk and uh, Bert Whippity. And um, Bert was a Maori, of course. And uh, he, he could fly pretty well. And, um, but they gave him a DFM. And uh, that day when this <coughs> the squadron leader which had taken them, uh, he shot down the reconnaissance plane. And I said to Bert later on, what did you, how many, did you fire a lot of shots at him? I never fired a shot, he said. So he got the DFM for not firing a shot, you know. And that's how stupid the bloody British were in Malaya. They had big chiefs. And um, they didn't recognise us or anybody. There was two or three of us uh, had, or fellows that had three in so confirmed victories, you know. I had six, I know, but um, at that time. and. Um, they uh, they didn't even recognise us. And uh, oh, it's like Bert Webberty. I was telling you about Bert. He they wanted to save him because he was a Maori and get out, and he didn't fire a shot at this thing. So they got him out to India and then got him out to England. And by that time, Charlie Cronk had killed himself in India. And uh, he, uh, Bert was in a squadron in England, flying Fitzroyers, and on his first flight he got killed. So it had been better off staying with us. <laughs> you know, I'm getting out the hard way. And, uh, well, we eventually got kicked out of Malaya, as everybody knows, and we got out on a sampan and uh, an Indian sloop picked us up in the bay and that there was a, a thing called the Denai. And they met up with the Aquitania and it was going to Colombo to pick up the 8th Army that was there. And uh, so they took us there and brought us back again. And I was wounded at the time, and I couldn't do anything anyway. But uh, um, they, um, but then they, they arrived, took everybody back to uh, Australia, and um, they uh, let them all off there and. Uh, under guard, but they're 
the Eighth Army were all under guard all the time, you know. Don't know why, but uh, but we got off, and uh, I was uh, got back here to Littleton in uh, New Zealand, and um, I couldn't get off the, the boat there, and. Uh, the old wharfies were good to me. They yelled out, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm waiting for the ambulance to come and pick me up, you know. And they said, do you want a beer? And I said, yes, I'd like a beer, you know. I haven't tasted beer for a while. Because um, in the tropics, you'd, all you drank was whiskey. And um, anyway, they sent a big Derrick up and picked and strapped me into that and got me down on the ground and put me on a trolley and pushed me up to the pub, <laughs> which was good. And we had a few sessions, but the ambulance driver was a girl and she, they had just got in it. Uh, women had just started to get in the Air Force and things. And she wasn't very happy with us, you know, looking for me. Uh, that, but um, one of the funniest sights I ever had where I was, while I was there, was I was orderly officer for a while because I couldn't do anything and that and I couldn't walk uh, much. And um, a sergeant said to me, oh, we've got to go around and have a look at something or other and, uh, that he was talking about and I said, what are you talking about? Oh, I said, we'll go through here. And he opened the door and he says, close your eyes, girls. We're coming through and all the girls were naked waiting for the doctor to come and we just walked through. God, what a sight. You know? <laughs> but they didn't seem to mind much, you know. Didn't worry about us, but... Uh, um, from then on, it um, just got better all the time, and once you start to get better, I never had to do any parades or stand on the, uh, you know, I just stood in a certain position on the show, and uh, I got away with it. But, um, and then we, uh, oh, when we first got back, we formed 14 Squadron, of course. And uh, there was about three pilots from 488 that used to be 488 Squadron, uh, New Zealand Squadron, that went over to Malaya, and 67 Squadron moved out to India. Um, and... Uh, there were about three fellows of um, 243 Squadron, which I was in, and came back. And uh, But one fellow had never flown, and he went uh, with us, and he'd, he eventually finished up as a doctor in America. Um, but, uh, so that's how 14 Squadron was formed, and uh, the next thing was all um, instructors and things like that were put in to make up the squadron. Um, what was Masterton like as a as a place to be based? Was it fairly small? 
Uh, Marston was a, a good airdrome. But we used to have to taxi planes down the road, you know, and on the roadway to get down from one paddock to another. And the mechanic be sitting on one wing and the rigger on the other wing and directing you, you know, keep how where to go. And they built a new runway, and uh, but that was about 14 foot deep. They dug it and then filled it with rocks and dirt. And it's still a beautiful aerodrome uh, runway at the present time today. And did you guys mix with the locals in the town much? Oh yes, a lot. A lot. We got on... Uh, we used to have um, lots of fun. I was I was on flare path duty one night, I remember, and everybody was flu and flu and I, then I about Half past twelve in the morning, I decided I'd go up and fly, you see, because of the last fight and I went flew. And there was hell to play in the paper the next day about rowdy aircraft over the head and people couldn't get to sleep and everything. And the old uh, mayor at the time, he really took them to task and, you know, said, oh, well, these fellas have got to work. and." Uh, get in there, practice, and you're just going to put out with a one night a month sort of business, and you know. But it was um, really good. But Marston's a big, quite a big aerodrome, and uh, I think Brooker was the first CEO of it. I'm not quite sure. I know Brooker was one anyway, the CEO, and eventually Stan Quill took over as. Um, CEO of the squadron. Um, he and I didn't see eye to eye um, <coughs> simply because he um, said, Well, you had a few victories in Australia, I'm going to see that you're kept under cover here, and I was eventually. Uh, given the, as a flight lieutenant job and um, I was leading the squadron at one stage and old Stan was away at the back and then there was a message come through that um, uh, two bogies were coming in at about 2,000 feet or 3,000 feet above the ships that we were escorting. And uh, I, he said, well, I'll go, I'll go, and we started to leave, and uh, I said, you stay where you are. I said, if they're two or three thousand feet, the ships will get them quite easily. Even though they're torpedoed and that, they can still fire their guns, you know. And, uh, but he left, and uh, he eventually, um, finished up with a bullet in his arm so uh, for his trouble and uh, the very very next day when I saw him uh, I didn't see him till the next day and I'd got the Yanks had given me a 
quite a number of bottles of little whiskey or bottles of whiskey and put it in um, I put it in the tent and uh, you know for everybody to have a drink of it. Anyway I'll um, when Stan came home the next day he started to yell at me and I said you know what? I said if you ever leave me again I'll shoot me of myself right between the eyes. Within a week I was back to flying off. <laughs> That's how you get to lose rank. <laughs> you mentioned the Wairarapa Wildcat nose art. Can you tell me the story behind that? Well, it was a plane that was dropped in the sea on the way over one of our first flights over I wasn't flying it and it was dropped in the sea and uh, well they all dropped in the sea, we all dropped in the sea and they picked us up and uh, um, and the Black Cat Squadron American Black Cat Squadron fixed it up and re Mewed it all again and did everything and had this big black cat, angry looking black cat, as their, you know, um, thing. And they had that on the front of it. And um, so my mechanic and rigger said, uh, What are we going to call it? We'll have to call it something. And I said, well, I don't know, well, I'll ask my wife. So I rang my wife and asked her what she called me. I said, a big black cat on the front. And she said, all oh, the other two fellows come from the wire upper. You don't, but you've worked down there so long. I, I was on stations there on the wire upper before after I'd... And, um, she said, why don't you call it the Wairap Wildcat? And that's how it got its name. So, uh, you know, it was... Uh, but I think eventually they told me that some... I think it was a Maori pilot was drove straight into it with his plane and cut it in half. <laughs> Nobody was in it, thank goodness. <laughs> So uh, what happened to it eventually, I don't know. Well, I actually heard that it was up at Rooker here. Yeah. And, uh, um, well, the, the remains of it at least, and they, they thought about saving it, but when Motac got their one, yeah. but it was too far over behind everything else, so they just grabbed the, the closest one to the gate instead. But it, it was that close from being saved. Yeah. So if that's the truth, that's what I've been I don't know, I don't know, never heard anything about it at all, right. you know. It's a shame it wasn't saved. It was one of the, probably the most famous RNZ aircraft, wasn't it? Well, it, uh, I, I, I suppose it is as it shot down. down. I, um, I didn't, uh, I was a really good shot, even though I say it myself. I was shooting from the time I could walk practically, you know. And uh, we had several stations, my father, and 
We used to, all the kids, school kids used to come up there and stay there all the holidays, you know, and someone in the houses. And, uh, and the um, shearers' quarters and things like that, and they used to stay there. And we all used to go shooting and everything. And, and anyway, they had, um, when the aircraft were armed, they armed them at three th uh, 300 yards away, and that's the spot you were supposed to uh, fire at. And the range of fire was 300 yards, and it was about a hundred and something square feet that you fired at, and you could fly through it. And I reckon that was no good, so I put mine down. Eventually, I got it down to about six square feet, and that was getting a lot of shots in a confined space. And if I hit the aircraft, I knew bloody well he wasn't going to fly much longer, you know. And that's how I got the aircraft. But nobody changed their things, only me. Uh, because uh, I don't know why everybody, I think, they were quite happy with the way it was. But I wasn't. You could, couldn't get, you know, victories. And um, I finished up with 12 confirmed victories and seven probables. And a probable is where somebody doesn't see it hit the water or hit the ground, you know. But half the time, by that time, you've been fighting over a fair distance and there's not many people around to see it, you know if it takes a long while, but uh, so you've just got to put up with it. And that's, uh, uh, but that was a top score for uh, anybody. And um, going back to the, the nose art on the P-40, at Masterton, I believe some of the P-40s also got names. I've seen photos of um, there was well, uh, um, um, Slumpergrass. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, that was. And there I was think um, that was, um, not quite sure, I think that was Seavers' uh, plane, I think it was, I'm not quite sure. And Parky Carcass? Uh, yeah, Parky Carcass was another one. Remember that name, yeah. And the, the third one I know of is Magnolia Mufflewort. Oh, I don't remember that one, but uh, Parker Carcass and, and Sloppergas were two well-known planes. That, um, they, uh, you could name them and get away with it, you know, if you liked, and uh, uh, there was nothing said about them, you know, being named, but... Uh, so, did you have a name on your aircraft at Masterton? At Masterton? Uh, eventually I did, yes. What was it? That was the Warrap Wildcat. Oh, okay, that's it. Yeah. Uh, eventually we had it on. At, uh, first time I had 
I didn't have a name on it, but I had a uh, first plane I had. It wasn't the wire up the wildcat at the time. Uh, was uh, I forget what I had on it now? Been a long while ago. <laughs> So when you were up in the, well, when you were going up in the to the islands from New Zealand, yeah, um, did you have m much uh, apprehension of flying up there? Because your you, your squadron was the first squadron to fly your P40s from New Zealand up to there, and the first lot ended yeah. up in the sea, as you said. Yeah. So when you went, did, were you a bit worried about the long flight? Oh no, you you had uh, a DC three with you. Uh, not that they could do much. Um, first flight over uh, there, I pulled out because I was dropping out of the sky, and and then you'd have to put your booster button on and pick up again and go and. Um, then I said I was going to turn around, uh, go back to Waipapa Carry. And um, they con committed an unforgivable sin of letting me go on my own. They were supposed to send somebody with you. you know? And anyway, I got. I went back to Waipapa Carey and I flew, we were on the way over to Norfolk Island um, and uh, anyway they, um, I got back to Waipapa Carey and got halfway run along the runway and she cut out. <laughs> so uh, uh, they towed her in and we looked at her and got a working again and the next day I flew down to Fenuapai to have, get out to have a look at them, you see. And then um, when we, the, the others had stopped at New Caledonia, they couldn't get uh, any first, they landed in, in the sea there so they stopped there. Well, the time they got back, we had new planes ready, you know, and we went over and uh, landed at Esprito Santos, and uh, eventually and uh, stayed there for a while, and then we had to go on with a. Um, Um, go on to Guadalcanal, what was going on. And um, that time the wire up a wildcat, it hadn't got its name, it was on. Uh, it had, they'd, Black Cat Squadron had brought it to Guadalcanal. And uh, as soon as I was staying, Quint, Sword. He said, that's yours, Siskin. 
I said, thanks very much. And uh, it was one of the ones that had been in the sea. And uh, I think he thought, well, it's <laughs> pretty far gone playing. I won't have anything. Won't last very long. But uh, we did. But um, the, even in the, that day, those days, the mechanic and the rigger used to sit on the wingtip and you used to take them out and they'd jump off when you were ready to take off and uh, they'd be waiting for you when you got back. Uh, I don't know what happened if you didn't get back, you know. Uh, but they all, um, they, were, they were good. Uh, they looked after you a lot, the riggers. And they, that, both mine are dead now. Who, who were they? Um, Eglinton was the rigger, and um, oh, what's his name? I know it as well as hell. Uh, Clive. Oh, hell, his photos there too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my memory's going now. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have a good memory, but I, I forget things. Not a problem, it'll probably come to you anyway. Yeah, well, it most probably will come back. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so, uh, was it quite difficult to adjust to the island life when you got up to the islands? Um, not really, no. Well, we had been something similar in the for me, anyway, in Malaya, and all kicking all around Indonesia and that, you know. Um, it was, though it was very, very hot in Malaya, sort of business, you were sitting on the equator, and uh, it wasn't so hot in the islands, but um, when we first went in, the Japs had built Henderson Field and um, there were still a lot of Japs there at the, on the island and uh, often you used to get fired at when you were taking off down at the end of the runway, you know. So you made sure that you gave them plenty of power and got up in the air pretty quickly to get out of the road. but. Uh, uh, they eliminated all those fellows that were on it anyway, so... And your main role would have been escorting the American bombers, is that right? Um, no, we did escort American bombers a lot. Or, uh, if there was anything um, torpedoed, we used to escort that back up, you know. Uh, Sometimes bloody miles out to sea, a long-range tank could just manage to hold everything. Had to drop a long range. Had to, supposed to have dropped your long-range tank if you got into a fight, you know, and switch her over. But uh, sometimes, I mean that wing thing when I got 
hit my wing, I hadn't dropped the way I, uh, the belly tank, and uh, it saved my life, I think, you know, flying home. And I was still about two hours and three hours and flying home, trying to protect that wing was uh, a bit of a um, uh, hard going, you know. How, how did you actually get hit? Well, the Japs shot me. Uh, there was about seven Japs I was attacked by, and one put a cannon shell in there, and it burst the blooming things, and, and they hit my seat, the armour-plated seat that we had on in front of us, you know. And the cannon shell, one cannon shell, eventually on one flight, hit the side of the plane and bounced back into my head. And we got out, and all, there was all blood down my leg, and I didn't notice it. I hadn't think, worried about a thing because I'd got the jap that did it, and um, stood up in the plane, and the bloody rigger fainted, Eglinton. I wondered what he was fainted for, you know, lying on the ground, I thought to it. And uh, anyway, old, um, oh, hell, I never thought of his name then, um, said, um, oh, you've got all blood. And I looked down and I had about four inches of steel sticking out of my head. And, uh, we tried to pull it out with a pair of pliers, but all oh, I got too sore. So we had to go to the doctor and get it cut out. And uh, it was, uh, they were only about that long, the cannon shells, you know. And um, I think it was the first time that sulfonalamide was invented. And the doctor just got a handful of it and slapped it on my bloody hip here, said, well, see if that'll clean it up. But they cleaned it up for, it did fix it up and I could fly, but it was aching a lot and eventually they took it out and gave me a new hip. But uh, a few years after. And, and you'd already been wounded before, hadn't you? Yeah. Now, tell me about when you got wounded the first time. Uh, oh, that wasn't much. I. Uh, I um, I think it was in the arm I got wounded, but it's gone now. I had a used to have a big black spot there where I was hit in the arm, you know. Uh, but uh, and, and that was over Malaya. Yeah, but that was. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I think we were in a fight with 97s that day and they weren't fast. And um, we were spouting around with two or three of us and got a few. Uh, best day of Malaya was coming down the Moor River. And uh, 
we were just coming out of Malaya down up to the, as far as the Moor River from Kalang, and uh, we uh, saw these Japs and two barges coming down, and they were full of troops. And we were about at 20 feet, there was a fellow called Rex Weber and I. Rex was, he was professor at Massey University before he came over. He's dead now, and uh, he started uh, another business when he came back uh, in, uh, down in uh, Hamilton, I think it was. And uh, anyway, he um, he and I strafed these bloody Japs, and they were heading for the shore to get out of into the underneath the branches to get out of sight. You see, shit, we bloody we were bloody tons of them going over, you know. And anyway, the machine gunner on the back of one of them was firing and firing and firing at me, and I gave him a burst and. All I saw him, he floated up in the air and he floated away back, about 50 yards back. And I, I think he was in front of me when I saw that. But, uh, um, but that was the best fun that we had. It wasn't fun, it was killing people. But, but there's nothing to see him. Two or three hundred bodies on the shore or on the shore of the river or something of Japs and the same amount of Yanks, you know. And the Yanks were mad, of course. They, uh, there were so many of them had mason jars full of teeth that they knocked out of dead people, you know. And their fathers were paying them so much to take these teeth home and how many, for every pair, uh, pair of teeth they got, they got so much money for you know, home. And I didn't agree with that, but, uh, and uh, I didn't agree with a lot of things that they did. Did you mix much with the Americans um, socially? Uh, well, only at meal time, we had meals with the Americans, and but we didn't uh, uh, mix them. If you went to the open air picture show, well, Americans were there, but you didn't worry about them. You went with your own crowd, you know. Uh, some of them could have been quite nice, but oh, a lot of them were mad. When the nurses come out, the Yank nurses, they, uh, they used to do their washing, you know, and all they'd have on was a bras and a pair of knickers, you know, and the Yanks would be all round the bloody show where they were washing. Ooh, ah, oh boy, <laughs> carrying on. Bastards are mad. Well, I guess um, uh, there would have been quite a different culture to New Zealand culture then compared to now where we're much more used to the American culture. 
here yeah. um, because of television and everything, but but they, it would have been quite a, a culture difference, wouldn't it? Oh well, yes, it was, you know. And I mean, they um, built the um, QE2 hospital here, and uh, then they went down to America, uh, not uh, Wellington, rather, and um, they were, um, oh, the fights I got into down in Wellington wasn't, wasn't, you know, it was one, two or three a night, and uh, I only saw one, uh, uh, but they picked a joker up. Uh, I don't know whether he was Aussie or not, but they, one had a, a, a hand each, you know, the other had a leg each, and they were swinging them back and forwards, and then they swung them at the wall. And he, there wasn't much left to him by the time they finished, you know. They were that sort of buckers. They were as bad as uh, the Japs. They, um, I shot a plane down and he landed right on American, near an American camp. And by the time I got down, landed and got out there to have a look, to see what he was. They'd cut him up with a spade, you know, just to get the parts of him to send back to their mothers and fathers, you know. They were just stupid. I think they got better after a while, later on, because they put out a, a, a law, I think, Admiral, Now what was his name? Now I've forgotten his name. Was it Horsey? Uh, Admiral Horsey? No. No, anyway, he put out an order that anybody defiling the dead would be shot themselves, you know. And uh, that stopped them a bit. But what about the ground crews on the squadron? They must have been um, pretty important to you guys. Uh, of our own squadrons? Yes, they were. Uh, they all, um, as I say, they they came out mostly to when you took off and waited till you come back. You know, uh, that's if you come back. Um, but then they'd, uh, but uh, they were. Really looked after you, you know, pilot. They thought the world of them. But uh, they were good and important to us. An armourer, you know, and he'd go and harm um, uh, everything. And uh, the rigger and mechanic were <coughs> very. Uh, um, very important people, yeah. What sort of things did you do for recreation up at Guadalcanal when you had time off? Guadalcanal? Yeah. Um, oh, mainly swimming and things like that. There's beautiful beaches there. And uh, swim and the 
Liberty ships used to come in and drive straight on to the shore and then just put the sort of drawbridge from the front down, you know, drive everything off onto the beaches and uh, uh, but we uh, we spent most of our time swimming, things like that, you know. Swimming or drinking, but uh, or getting things off the Yanks, go to the PX stores, and get something for nothing. <laughs> what sort of booze did you have up there? Booze. Uh, no, we didn't have any booze at, at all. But, uh, at that stage, um, we, um, oh, you could get a bit of, when you got back to Norfolk Island, you could get it there, but uh, we never bothered sort of much and waited till we got up back to Fenerpoi and you could, but then you couldn't drink as much as you thought you could because you used to drink a lot uh, when you're in Malaya and you couldn't drink quarter as much when you uh, came back from the islands. Uh, Kamagata. Uh, hey, what about the food up in Guadalcanal? That can't have been too good. The, uh, the food? Yes, it was very good. Yes, they had big cooks, good cooks. And Lots of cooks and um, um, every barrack had a, you know, food show in it and uh, uh, we all got plenty to eat and, you know, it was good. Okay. Um, and did you mix much with the New Zealanders on the Hudson squadrons up there, the bombers? I uh, didn't see them much. No, we didn't see them much. So you were all separated on different yeah. ends of the airstrip? Okay. Yeah, we were, they were in um, one airstrip and uh, we may have been on another, you know. Just wondering about some of your other um, combats that you had. Uh, was there any where you, apart from the one where your wing got shot, was there any others where you got into trouble? Um, oh, a couple of times I got into trouble, but uh, uh, the Japs never followed us down on a dive. I don't know why. But you could dive out of the road, if you could dive and get out of the road, you know, and leave her going for a 10 or 12,000 feet, you could um, outmanoeuvre them all together. They never followed you. <coughs> and uh, by that time, then you were all right. And, uh, but they were... Um, the trouble was that uh, they they never seemed to get you in ones or, or twos. They they're always about half a dozen there, 
Only time I saw one or two, one joker come in behind me and fired a few shots and veered straight up in front of me. Well, he was dead before he knew he was having breakfast, uh, you know. But uh, that sort of thing didn't happen very often and normally they were all around you, sort of got waiting to get a shot. But uh, don't know whether they're bad shots or not, but I would never couple of times I got a few, quite a few bullets in the plane, but nothing really serious. Okay. And it sounds like you were a good pilot rather than him being bad shots. Uh, well, I thought I was a good pilot. <laughs> I might be my opinion. <laughs> But uh, uh, I wish I could find that thing of stands for you and you could read that. And, but uh, they give me credit for a lot of things. And, uh, but no, I, um, I come out of it all right, you know, so. Did you, um, did you go on to Corsairs at all? Or no, you, you didn't? no, I didn't get on to Corsairs. And Corsairs, as far as I know, never done any, had any fighting. They strafed, was strafing all the time. Whispering death or something, I think they called them. But they reckon they were a great plane. But I didn't like the look of them, you know, the bent wings, and uh, you'd think, well, if you couldn't get your undercarriage down, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you could on the other old P-40, but they were faster than the P-40. I was given a plane up there, the Yanks gave me a plane, but the New Zealand government wouldn't let me bring it back. What was it? Uh, a Tempest, I think. Not a, no, it wasn't a te Tempest. Uh, it was quite a fast sort of a plane. And it was still in the... Um, Still in um, boxes, you know, but they, uh, it wasn't a very big plane, it was very small, but fast. Was it something like a Hellcat or something? Yeah, something like that. Uh, I think it was a Hellcat or something like that. How come they gave you that? Was it just a personal gift or...? Oh, yeah, the Admiral, uh, some Admiral of the fleet uh, gave it to me because I'd shot down a few planes and uh, saves... Oh, gave me the credit of saving 
his uh, one of his ships sort of business, but you know that was a load of hooey, and uh, because in what do they call it, Iron Bark? Iron Bottom Sound. Iron Bottom Sound or something like that. There's about 400 boats from the bottom of it. And that, believe it or not, is where the videotape ran out on that particular day. And so we called it a day. We'd covered pretty much everything anyway. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Jeff Fiskin and the earlier segments with Max Speedy and Marty Irons and the special episode to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the Pacific War. Lest we forget. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>